Welcome to Konrad's Journey Through the Middle East, a podcast by the Konrad Adenauer Foundation's Syria, Iraq office from Beirut, featuring discussions and analysis on contemporary political, social and economic issues in the MENA region. My name is David Labude and I'm research associate at the Syria, Iraq office. Today I would like to take a look back at the Arab Spring in Syria and Iraq. How did the events unfold in 2011? How was it in Damascus or Baghdad at that time? And what is left of the demands a decade after the uprisings? While the initial protests in Iraq calmed down quickly, the root causes for public anger remain unresolved until today. And new waves of protests shook the country again and again, in particular since October 2019. The uprising in Syria, on the other hand, quickly turned violent and the country has sunk into conflict and bloodshed with no solution in sight. What does the future hold for these two countries and is there any hope left despite of the unfulfilled demands and ongoing violence? To get a better grasp of the Arab Spring and its legacy, I'm joined today by the author and journalist Sam Dagger. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Hi, David. It's it's great to, to chat with you for, for this podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. Sam, starting in February 2011, you covered the Arab Spring uprisings in Egypt, Bahrain and Libya. Then you moved to Syria and became the only reporter for a major Western media outlet based full-time in Damascus from 2012 to 2014 before being detained by the Assad regime and thrown out of the country. Could you tell us how it was to be in Syria during this time? I was based in Damascus and I got a chance to report from other parts of Syria as well, like Homs and the coastal region in the west and Aleppo in the north. And it was an opportunity to witness firsthand the measures that were being taken by the regime and its allies to crush the rebellion. So. I saw with my own eyes how the regime was besieging opposition areas, bombing them nonstop and starving them into submission. And I also, you know, lived through this almost like surreal world. It was this stark difference between the areas that were controlled by the regime and the areas that were outside the regime control. And I observed this in Homs, in Aleppo and Damascus. So for instance, in Damascus, much of the center was controlled by the regime and uh, most of the suburbs were controlled by the opposition. So the, the regime was making life hell for people living outside uh, its control, you know, bombing them, besieging them, starving them. And at the same time, at least back then, I mean, obviously the situation is different now, but at least back then between 2012 and 14, life on the surface was more or less normal in the areas controlled by the regime. It was a way for the regime to say, you can submit to, to the rule of Bashar al-Assad and you will be safe and you will live normally. I mean, again, this is uh, the impression that the regime wanted to give to people, or you can defy the regime and you can live the hell that the people who have who've dared to come out and oppose the regime are living through right now. And so you'd be in the center of, of Damascus and everything on the surface is more or less normal. Restaurants are open, shops, uh, people are in the parks, uh, nightclubs, I mean, more or less on the surface, everything is normal, people going to work, to schools, and then, you know, on the mountain that's just overlooking Damascus Mount Kassiun, that's where the regime had its artillery and was shelling, you know, the suburbs just beyond the capital. So you could hear the outgoing artillery and, you know, and rockets, and you can even see the impact, you know, the smoke plumes and the horizon, and then you can also hear the planes, you know, oversee, uh, over, I'm sorry, the planes overhead that are on their way to bomb the opposition areas. So it was quite surreal. I mean, you, you knew something horrible was happening just a 
few miles from where you are, but where you are, everybody was pretending that everything was more or less normal. And also, I was able to observe, I think, how the regime was able to co-opt the UN humanitarian agencies, particularly the World Food Program, and to use it, to use these programs in its strategy to starve opposition areas into submission, because all these UN agencies were based in Damascus, in the center, in the areas controlled by the regime, and they had to operate according to the rules set by the regime. So the regime was deciding which area was getting UN food baskets or UN aid or UN medical supplies. And I think, unfortunately, the UN agencies went along for the most part with, you know, the regime's uh, dictates and rules. And I got to observe that, you know, firsthand. And also what was really staggering for me was living through the fear and paranoia and, and and seeing, you know, how the Syrians were actually grappling with it. Because for the most part, even in Damascus, the majority of the people were, you know, deep in their hearts were against the regime, but they couldn't say anything because of, you know, what the regime would do to them. Because by then, 2012, 13, 14, the prisons and, you know, were full of people who were just arrested for maybe posting something on Facebook or maybe being suspected of being against the regime. And then you had sort of the grim situation where a lot of people were tortured to death in prison and sometimes their bodies would come back to their relatives who are, you know, living under regime control. And this was, again, the regime's way of telling people living in regime-controlled territories, you know, be careful. This is the price you would pay for defiance. We will send you back as a body to your families. So it was, it was quite incredible, I mean, and, and, and upsetting and to, to, to live through all of that. Thanks for these striking depictions of the situation in Syria at the beginning of the uprising. You have mentioned that parts of Syria relatively quickly became war zones, whereas other parts, like for example Damascus, Tartus and Latakia, were mainly spared from war. Today, white parts of Syria are in ruins. The ongoing war killed at least half a million people and displaced half of the population. Just last November, Syria marked the 50th anniversary of the Assad regime in power. How has the Assad family been able to rule the country for so long, despite of all these hardships you have just described? I would say in, in three main ways. First of all, the family and this regime is ruthless at home. It operates under the principle of no mercy, no mercy towards any threat to their, to their grip on power. And this is what the father demonstrated in the 70s and 80s, when in a very similar way, you had first a civil uprising students, professors, professionals protesting against uh, the dictatorship of Hafez al-Assad, and then him turning it into a war against an Islamist insurgency. Yes, that was starting, but then he used it as a pretext to crush all opposition, culminating in the massacre in Hama in 82. And the son did the same thing, but obviously the consequences were a lot more devastating. But that principle of being absolutely ruthless at home and being prepared to do everything to retain your power. And also, I think what's consistent throughout these 50 years is this network of secret police uh, apparatuses that 
monitor citizens and cover as every aspect of their lives. So every citizen is more or less monitored or affected by these secret police apparatuses. And these same intelligence services pretty much oversee every aspect of life in Syria. They oversee and control the organs of power. The government itself is controlled and overseen by the intelligence services, the army, the Ba'ath Party, the economy. So in a way, the Assad family has designed this coup-proof system where the army might be thinking about maybe turning against the regime, which is what happened when Bashar al-Assad faced the uprising in 2011. You know, we saw desertions in the army and we saw some top officers also defect. But at the end, that's not where the real power lies. The real power lies in the family and the intelligence services. And the second, you know, way in which this family has has managed to uh, remain in power for so long is they've consistently taken advantage of regional fissures and, and fissures and, and problems and fueling, you know, regional problems and then presenting themselves as the ones who can help resolve them, presenting themselves mainly to the West, Europe and America, as being the ones who can help resolve the problem. And we saw what the father do that in Lebanon in the context of the civil war. You know, initially he went there as somebody who was going to stop the Muslims from slaughtering the Christians. But at the end of the day, the Syrians became part of that civil war. But still, you know, the regime projected itself as a fair, quote unquote, fair arbiter. And the same with, say, Palestinian guerrillas and vis-a-vis Israel, always the regime exploiting these situations and saying, I'm willing to help, but give me X, Y, and Z, this sort of uh, deal-making mentality. And the same with terrorism during that period in the 70s and 80s and the 90s. I mean, the terrorism that even reached Europe. And we know from cases in Germany and France, you know, that the regime was involved in some of this, these terror attacks. And it was, again, the way the regime operated, you know, saying, I can do this, I can do these horrible things, but at the same time, I have the keys to stop this in return for certain concessions. And the son did the same thing for a while in Lebanon before, you know, Syrian troops were forced out. And also in Iraq, where the regime was supporting the insurgency in all its forms, and be it the Ba'athist pro-Saddam insurgency or even the Al-Qaeda radical Islamist insurgency. The regime had an interest in seeing the Americans, you know, sink in the mud of Iraq and to make them think twice about maybe challenging the regime in Syria and then presenting itself as the solution. And then fast forward, we see it even now with the way many European intelligence agencies and countries are dealing with the regime now, maybe secretly, but they're saying the regime can help us uh, fight ISIS or the regime can help us control the refugee crisis. And then, of course, you know, the regime being the entity that actually fueled much of these problems, be it, you know, the, the rise of ISIS or the refugee crisis. And then the third way this regime has remained in power is it always plays the long game. They operate under the principle of, you know, they're not going anywhere. Governments come and go elsewhere, but they're, you know, in power for the long term. All they have to do is lay low and wait for this crisis to kind of wash over. I mean, this is how they've outlasted now nine U.S. presidents since Nixon, and they've outlasted five, I guess, German chancellors, and maybe they'll outlast the current one as well. It is actually very likely that the Assad regime will outlast Angela Merkel as well, since she is not going to stand again for election in September this year. 
You have described why the regime is, as you coined it, coup-proof, which perhaps is being underlined by the fact that the conflict in Syria lasts for almost 10 years now. However, as early as in 2013, the current UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, called the war in Syria the great tragedy of the 21st century. For years, the international community could not come to an agreement. And I'd like to ask you, and I know that is probably the one million dollar question, but what's necessary today to reach a settlement in Syria? I think there's a difference between a political settlement, which looks at this uh, situation as, as simply a political dispute, which it, it's not, and a long-lasting solution, which is what, what's needed in Syria. So I think if you're looking for a long-lasting solution, first of all, you have to put justice and accountability front and center. The regime and everybody else who's been involved in war crimes needs to be held accountable for their atrocities and war crimes. That's number one. So that should be the focus of any effort to, to resolve the current situation in Syria. Number two, I think you also have to treat the regime and the family as entities that have hijacked the country and its people and its resources for five decades and have done everything to remain in power, including destroying the country and displacing millions. That has to remain the focus of any resolution. And number three, I think, and this is also very important, you have to look at all the regional and international powers who have armed and supported different factions in this war in Syria, both pro and anti-regime. You have to look at all the players, starting from the Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, and others. They need to end their destructive involvement in this war. You've described the involvement of foreign powers in Syria. The Syrian regime's power has been mainly consolidated through this, that is, with Russian and Iranian support. Besides foreign interferences, has the Arab Spring brought anything positive at all to Syria? I mean, just a, a brief comment on the first part of your question. You know, you talk about Russian and Iranian support. I think you're also forgetting the tacit support of many European states that they've in their minds, it's always been a choice between either Assad or ISIS and refugees, forgetting that he actually creates and fuels these crises. So you have to actually also put in the equation this tacit support that the regime now gets from a lot of Western states in Europe. In terms of the, um, the Arab Spring and whether it had anything positive, I think, yes, you have a new generation of Arabs and non-Arabs who are from the region, because you have to remember, this is not a region of only Arabs. I mean, there are other ethnic groups living there that have been freed from the physical, mental, emotional, psychological shackles of tyranny and oppression. They found their own voices and identities. I mean, this is, this is at the heart of the Arab Spring, that something that gets overlooked, you know, when so much attention is focused on the wars, the tragedies, the extremism, ISIS, because, I mean, these are the things that you know, Western media organizations focus on. But what tends to be overlooked that, you know, people after 10 years, you have a new gener generation that really found their own voices and identities. And there's no turning back for many of these people. That's it. Obviously, it has come at a huge cost for everyone. But at the same time, again, if you look at it from the perspective of the region, I think for a lot of these young people, the struggle is not over yet. It could take another 10 years to realize their goals and aspirations, but I think they will get there. But you have to look at the whole issue from 
the experiences of the people of the region, first and foremost. Sam, you talked about a new generation that is growing up under, depending on the country, different paradigms than their parents. And I sense optimism as well as pessimism when talking to you about the Arab Spring. If you had to sum up the Syrian uprising in just one word and in one sentence, what would it be? Both one word and one sentence? Uh, perhaps you can first tell me one word that comes in your mind and then elaborate on it a little bit more. I mean, one word would be tragedy. But one sentence, I think, would be a, a better uh, maybe reflection of the situation. I think it's a revolt, a revolution for freedom and dignity, crushed by the reg regime and its enablers, hijacked by regional powers on all sides, and betrayed by those countries that proclaim to be defenders of democracy and uh, liberal values. I believe that frames the events quite well. Looking into the future, After the U.S. election of November 3rd, with Joe Biden as new U.S. president, what consequences could this have for Syria, in your opinion? I think Syria and much of the Middle East will be the least of Biden's priorities. I mean, there's so much to deal with here domestically. I mean, I'm talking to you from the U.S. I mean, we're talking about the death toll from the pandemic soon approaching, you know, the number of people that the U.S. lost during World War II you know, 400,000 people. And we're talking about an economy and, and society that's been pretty much gutted by this uh, pandemic. So that's the focus of the Biden administration will be on what's going to happen here in the U.S. first and foremost. And in terms of the region, I, I mean, they said during the campaign and, and afterwards that they want to uh, re-enter the, the nuclear agreement with Iran. So that tells you that they actually want to dial down tensions. So any confrontation with Iran over Syria would not be in that direction. I predict that Bashar al-Assad will stage new elections this summer and proclaim himself president for another seven years. And the U.S., the Biden administration will come out and condemn it, but not do anything beyond that. So it seems Syria will remain a minor matter for U.S. foreign policy under Biden as well. Um, I'd like to switch the focus now from Syria to its neighbor, Iraq. You were also a correspondent in Baghdad for a long time in the early 2000s. How do you assess the recent wave of protests there? Is there any connection to the Arab Spring, in your opinion? I think the protests we've seen in Iraq since uh, the fall of last year have been absolutely incredible, have been unprecedented in the history of Iraq, because we saw, you know, an expression, a collective expression of a new generation of Iraqis in the late teens, 20s, and 30s, who've transcended all the divisions, primarily, you know, the sectarian divisions that have plagued the country for so long, to come out, men and women, very important, you know, have to see women on the front line of these protests, you know, together with men defying bullets to demand a better life. So that, that's, that was incredible. And also the other thing that really it's important to not lose sight of is that this, these protests started almost immediately after All the countries, including Iraq, were coming out and congratulating themselves on defeating ISIS and finishing the caliphate and all of that. And also, one of the main drivers of these protests have been, you know, predominantly Shiite areas in Baghdad and the south that have suffered more than any other community from the terrorism of ISIS. So this tells you that actually the problem is not ISIS. 
I mean, ISIS is, is a manifestation, is a symptom of a deeper problem, which is the bad governance, the corruption, the poverty, the marginalization that a lot of people feel. So the fact that people feel that they no, have no say in their future and lives, I mean, that's really the core of the issue here. ISIS was a manifestation of a very ugly an extreme manifestation of all, all these problems. But the protests, the timing of these protests and their context and who was behind them are the proof that really the problem goes much deeper than that. And I think they're absolutely connected to the Arab Spring because if you remember, I mean, at the start of the Arab Spring, you had protests and I was there. I mean, this was 2011, February, March in Tahrir Square you know, against the, the government of Nouri and Maliki at the time. And the protesters were dealt with the same way. I mean, they were hunted down and killed in the same manner. So I see it as absolutely an extension of that. And the same way what we saw in Algeria and Sudan and, and to some extent Lebanon was an extension of the Iron Spring. You have mentioned the ethno-sectarian quota system that is fundamental for the Iraqi political system as well as perhaps its social fabric and which we know is the same in Lebanon. Given the perhaps rigged political system in Iraq, what can the protests actually achieve? I mean, will they be able to topple the so-called Muhassasa system, that is the quota system? The Konrad Adenauer Foundation has recently conducted an opinion poll in Iraq and the overwhelming majority of Iraqis, that is 95%, said that they want to overcome the ethno-sectarian system. But how likely is it that such a fundamental change will take place? I think it could be realized if Iraqis are left to decide for themselves what kind of country they want to live in. So this means an end of these proxy power struggles, outside powers ending their intervention in Iraq and Iraqi politics, giving Iraqis the chance, the real chance, to decide for themselves what kind of future, what kind of state they want to live in. I think it's absolutely possible, number one. Number two, uh, you also have to see a change in you know, the way certain uh, Western countries, European countries, like even like Germany, the US, France, the way they deal with a country like Iraq. Because at the moment, the attitude is our priority is terrorism and ISIS. Our partner is this government that's in place now. That's what we care about. That's where our interests lie, is in engaging and supporting this government. And we don't want to think of the alternative because the alternative in their minds is chaos and maybe a return of ISIS, which is completely false. Because as I, as I told you, I mean, the policies of these governments are the main drivers of the kind of extremism that we see, you know, manifesting itself in ISIS and other groups. So you have to see this change in the way uh, Europe and the US deal with a country like Iraq to actually say, well, the real solution is to support, you know, these forces of change, to do everything to make sure, you know, they come to the forefront and are represented in the Iraqi government, in the Iraqi state. Unfortunately, we are already approaching the end of this podcast, but I'd like to ask you one last question. You have been observing the MENA region for many years. Do you see any positive changes, especially against the backdrop of the Arab Spring since 2011? It's certainly very bleak across the board. I mean, if you look at Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, uh, other parts of North Africa, it certainly looks very bleak and it certainly looks hopeless across the board. But I think that's not the reality. I mean, I would go back to what I said earlier about the new generation 
people in the region, young people in the region who look at the world differently, who interact with the world differently, I think these people will not go back. You also have to look at the millions of people who are now living outside the region, mainly in Europe, some in the US, other parts of the world, who are acquiring new skills and experiences, and who I think some of them will probably want to go back and help rebuild their countries. So I think it's hopeful in the long term. Thank you, Sam, for inspiring some optimism and for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks to our audience as well for listening. We will see you again soon. Stay tuned on the topics and please follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn at CAS Syria Iraq. Mm-hmm.